This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. God is, God is faithful. And that is one of the primary themes that we're going to see in the, the new series that we begin today. We're going to begin walking through the book of Esther today. And what we see in, in Esther is that, that God is at work. If we were to look back on our, our lives through all the turns and the road, the ups and the downs, the times in our lives when we just could not even figure out what was going on and when things seemed to be out of control, God was very much in control. And God was, was working all things together for his glory and our good. Esther just shows that in a beautiful way and kind of title this series for such a time as this, that comes from one of the verses in Esther. But God has put you here. You ever sometimes wonder, why wasn't I born at a different time? I wish I was born, you know, a few centuries back or whatever. Why now? Why here? God has put each of us here in this place, in this time, in your family, in your job, in this church, in our country, in this world for such a time as this. He's got a plan for you, and he wants to use you. We see that in Esther. So today we begin that journey. We're going to spend today and then five more weeks walking through this book together. So today we're going to look at uh, parts of chapters one and two, where we, we talk about how to live as strangers in a strange land. Esther chapter one, and if you would follow along, in your copy of God's Word. We'll, we'll read all of chapter 1 and walk into chapter 2 this morning. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red felspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine servant in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded 
Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and the Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirez, Parsina, and Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who were in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the Queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Bashtai is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman, the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Let's pray. Father, as we read the, the beginnings of this 
incredible story about the deliverance of your people. May we be reminded that we have a Savior who delivers from sin and death, who can deliver and grant breakthrough and freedom from whatever chains bind. And so, Lord, may, by the power of your Spirit right now, may you speak your word to us, and may the Deliverer be lifted up and exalted, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. After the fall of France in World War II in June of 1940, Adolf Hitler set his sights on Great Britain. And Hitler's plan was to invade the British Isles and fly the swastika over London, just as he had done in Paris. And so in order to soften up Great Britain for the coming German invasion, he unleashed all of his bombers. The entire German Air Force was just turned loose against Great Britain in July of 1940. Day after day, night after night, wave upon wave of German planes came raining down death and destruction on British cities. The only thing stopping them was the Royal Air Force. And as those waves of German planes came on, day after day and night after night, the incredibly courageous pilots of the RAF, the Royal Air Force, would climb in the cockpits of their Spitfires and climb into the skies above England and engage in dogfights where the mortality rate, the casualty rate, was beyond imagination. These RAF pilots knew that every single time that they got in the cockpit of their planes, that there was a high likelihood that they would never come back. But every day, they did it. And they not only turned the tide of the Battle of Britain and prevented an invasion of the British Isles and, 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 and brought deliverance to their people, they turned the whole tide of World War II. On Tuesday, August 20th, 1940, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave one of his, famous, his most famous speeches in which he paid tribute to the bravery of the pilots of the Royal Air Force. And Churchill said, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The Jewish people of ancient Persia were threatened with annihilation. And God used not just a few people, but really just two people to, to bring deliverance to his people. 
And Esther and Mordecai certainly are heroes in this story. But as in every story in the Bible, the ultimate hero is God. What we're going to see in Esther is that it is God that is moving the chess pieces. It is God who is putting the right people at the right, right place at the right time to make a difference. He did it then and he does it now. And ultimately what we see in Esther is like in every biblical story. It points to Christ. The deliverance of the Jewish people in Esther points to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. From a literary standpoint, Esther is just one of the masterpieces in the literature of the world. It is a story that is filled with twists and turns, dramatic reversals, fascinating characters, <laughs> mic drop moments. They are all there in Esther. And it's all true. And it's for you and me. What do we see today as we begin this journey? First of all, let's set the stage. Setting the stage of, of Esther. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus. Your translation may say Xerxes, that was his Greek name, same guy, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. So Susa was a city in ancient Persia. It would be modern-day Iran. And the king of Persia is this guy, Ahasuerus, who was a great builder and also a ruthless show-off, as we will also see today. Now, within Persia, there was a community of Jewish people. What were they doing there? Well, their ancestors had been brought there by force by the Babylonians as exiles. Now the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, but still these Jewish people in, in Persia were living under the domination of a foreign power. Now take note that at this point in the story, earthly powers seem to be holding all the cards. Earthly powers seem to be the ones that are calling the shots. But in reality, they are mere putty in the hands of God, who is in total control of everything that's happening, then and now. Look at verses three and four. Ahasuerus held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So basically, the king just gratifies his ego 
by saying, hey, for 180 days, it's, we're just, everybody's just going to come and admire my great wealth. It was kind of like, you know, a world's fair. Everybody's just going to come and see the splendor of my majesty and all of my great possessions. And this, this six-month ego trip culminates in a blowout banquet at the, at, the, at the end of it. Verses five and six. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red felspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. So here the author of Esther, by the way, who's anonymous. We don't know who the, the human author was. We just know that this person was a literary genius. But the author here is, is just brilliantly showing the over-the-top excess, the material excess of what was going on. And, and that wasn't the only kind of excess. Verses 7 and 8. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. You know, this is like one of those Tencent beer nights at the ballpark, you know, back in the 70s, except for they didn't have to pay 10 cents. Free booze, you know, all you could drink. And so you can imagine what this turned into. I mean, it was just complete drunken buffoonery. And the biggest buffoon of all was the king, because he is about to take an action in his drunken state that was so foolish, and it was going to be the first domino to fall that sets the stage for everything else that happens. But here's what we need to understand. The one who really tips the domino that sets this incredible story in motion is not a Hasharias. It's God. Everything is happening according to the plan of God. Old Testament scholar Karen Jobes says, even the actions of people who do not worship him are woven into patterns and purposes determined by the sovereign Lord alone. So what happens? On the final day of this blowout, after King Ahasuerus has displayed all of his trophies. He wants to display his trophy wife. And so he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, beautiful woman. He, he summons her to, to come into the banquet. Well, <laughs> Queen Vashti knows all too well what's happening in that banquet. And she has no intention whatsoever of being gawked at lustfully 
by a bunch of, of drunken idiots. And so she just says, no, I'm not coming. Well, can you imagine how this hit an egotistical maniac like Ahasuerus? He's livid and he's humiliated at his own party. So what does he do? He consults with his cronies and they say, hey, this is not just about you. If word gets out about what Queen Vashti has done, you know, it's going to upend the entire social order. We can't have this. And so they come with a recommendation. And we see the recommendation in verse 19. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree, let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. In other words, if she will not come when summoned, let her never be summoned again. And so now, the search begins for a new queen. And not surprisingly, the way that they did this search was absolutely barbaric. Look at chapter 2 and, and verses 2 through 4. The king's personal attendant suggested, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So this is nothing more than just human trafficking. They're going out and just rounding up girls, ripping them away from their families, from their parents, rounding them up like cattle and bringing them to Susa. Now again, the bad guys seem to be winning. They seem to be in control. They seem to be calling all the shots. In reality... God is the unseen director of history. God bends history according to his will. And God was arranging for the deliverance of his people and ultimately for our deliverer, the Lord Jesus. What's going to happen? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai. Look at verse 7. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Think of the contrast between King Ahasuerus 
and his powerful Persian court and these two Jewish exiles. Mordecai, this, this Jewish exile man, he had no power whatsoever. He's a stranger in a strange, strange land, far from home. Esther, not only a Jewish exile, but female. <laughs> and it's pretty obvious from what we've seen so far how this culture felt about women, how they treated women. And then on top of all that, Esther is an orphan. No one could be more powerless than her. But you see, God doesn't need the high and mighty to get his work done in this world. What does Paul write to the early Christians in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following? Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. That is what we will see in Esther. Let's get some takeaways for today. Getting the takeaways. What should we take away from what we've seen so far? First of all, we too are exiles. We too, as Christians, are exiles. Like Esther and Mordecai, we are strangers in a strange land, far from home. Our ultimate citizenship is not here. Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So while we are citizens of the United States and should be thankful for that and seek to be good citizens and, and make the most difference that we can here in our country, we need to understand that our ultimate citizenship is not here. Our destiny is not this fallen world. It's the new heaven and earth. But right now, we are exiles. Look at the way that Peter addresses believers in 1 Peter 1.1. He says he's writing to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad. That's us. And then in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he tells us how we should live as exiles. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Like the Christians that Peter was writing to in the first century, we are living in a culture that is primarily pagan. 
that does not share the, the kingdom's values and does not worship the king. And so as we live here, we are to live distinct lives, holy lives. But we need to understand that we're going to face a couple of temptations. One is assimilation. You know, just kind of blend in. Just blend in with the surrounding culture. In the science fiction series Star Trek, The Next Generation, there's this evil confederation called the Borg. And their constant refrain is, resistance is futile, you must be assimilated. That was the policy of the Persians and the Babylonians before them to Jewish exiles. They basically wanted these Jewish exiles to become Babylonians or Persians to the point that they, they would even give them new names after their gods. They wanted to strip these Jewish exiles of everything Jewish and just assimilate them into the culture. The pagan culture that we live in seeks to do the very same to us as believers, to, 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 to press us into its mold, to conform us. But what does the Bible say? Do not be conformed. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Another temptation that we face as we live as exiles is despair. Certainly, the Jewish exiles in Persia were tempted to despair. They had this glorious history that they knew about. Their people had been delivered from, from slavery in, in Egypt and the Exodus and, and so, much, so many glorious things in their past. But here they were, living far from home as exiles under the domination of a foreign power. And the temptation would be to think that God has abandoned us. And we too can be tempted to despair when we look around us at the drift of our culture, when we look around us, you know, at so many of the things that are happening in the world. And then when you put on top of it the, the trials and the tribulations and, and, and sometimes the pain and the grief that we go through in our own lives in this fallen world, we too can be tempted to despair. The book of Esther wants us to understand a couple of things. First of all, God is faithful to his people. God loves you. And God has everything under control. God is at work. That's the second takeaway that we see here. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But God is in every sentence in the book of Esther. Even when, when things seem like they're spiraling out of control in history and in our lives, God is the one who is moving the chess pieces for his glory and our good. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid says this, only with the benefit of hindsight 
is it possible to see all the intricate details of God's plan working together for the good of his people? So also in our own lives, we may well have no idea of what God is doing. He may seem hidden and remote. Wait, the end of our story has not yet been told. And who knows how the pieces of the jigsaw that at present seem to have no logical connection with one another will ultimately come together. And they will. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God is at work. Third, the story points to the Savior. The story points to the Savior. Esther is the story of the deliverance of the Jewish people from annihilation, from death. Why was God so determined to deliver the Jewish people? Not only in Esther, but throughout the Old Testament. We see it again and again. Why was God so determined to deliver the Jewish people? Because from the Jewish people was going to come the Savior of all peoples. Our Savior. Because we too were under the sentence of death, eternal death, with a, a debt of sin hanging over us that we could never pay. Our only hope was for a deliverer from outside. God has provided. Colossians 2.14 says that Christ erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And after Jesus bore our sin debt on the cross, he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he is coming again. He will return to make all things new. And when he does, King Jesus will summon his bride, the church, to a banquet. King Ahasuerus summoned his bride to a banquet to exploit her. King Jesus will one day summon his bride, the church, to a banquet to lavish his mercy and grace upon us. Again, Ian Duguid says, consider what Christ has done for his bride. Far from regarding her as a beautiful object existing solely to feed his pride and pleasure, he took one who was by nature completely unattractive and gave himself for her, laying down his own life for his people. It was while we were dead in our transgressions and sins that Christ gave himself for us, his life as a ransom for the ungodly. Everything we have, even the very righteousness in which we are clothed to appear before God, comes from his good hand. How can our hearts not be touched again with fresh love for a king who has loved us so freely and so graciously? If you are in Christ, you are part of the bride of Christ. 
And you are invited to that messianic banquet one day in the new heaven and earth. Christ has made it possible because of his death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And you are invited to come. You are invited to know him, to know him as your savior and king. Have you responded to his invitation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and love in giving your precious son for us. When we were dead in sin, you made us alive. We thank you for a savior who was crucified for sinners like us and who is risen and who will one day return where we as the bride of Christ will be invited to a very different kind of banquet than the one that we see in this chapter. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never responded to that invitation to know Christ. May you give people the grace to repent and trust in Jesus. And Father, as your people, may we be reminded that you are at work in our own lives. And especially we need reminding of that when we go through trials, disappointments, pain, grief, when we, can't, when we don't have the answers, when we can't trace your hand. Help us to know that we can trust your heart and that you are sovereign and that you love us and that you are faithful to your promises. And may that be communicated to us as we walk through this great book together. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.